I want to start with a big question uh, this morning. A big question that we've asked before, but a big question nonetheless. A question that has plagued philosophers and thinkers and honestly humans for a very long time. Maybe it has similarly plagued you. And the question is, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? It's a good question. Why are you here? Not here at HGC. I mean, why do you exist? Why were you born? Why are you alive? What are you supposed to do with your life? How are you supposed to do it? Are you just rolling around on this spinning sky rock and that's it? Or is there more going on? And how does the way we answer that question, what is the meaning of life, change the way that we live? Maybe a better question, how should it change the way that we live? All of this is summarized in the way that we answer the question, what is the meaning of life? Tom Brady, arguably the greatest NFL quarterback of all time, has won seven Super Bowls. He is married to a supermodel. His net worth is hundreds of millions of dollars. But even he doesn't know the answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? When he was interviewed after only his third Super Bowl win, he said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I think there's got to be more than this. So the interviewer asked, well, what's the answer? And Brady replied, I wish I knew. Tom Brady has it all by the world's standards. But he knows that there's got to be more than this. The Bible, the Christian faith, has an answer to that question. It says that apart from being in a right relationship with God, you will always feel a deep emptiness inside. This is summarized in the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which we've quoted many times here. But the first question is this. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? The answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's a simple answer to a big question. And we can and should spend the rest of our life trying to figure out what that means for us. How do we apply that principle to answer the question, what is the meaning of life? But it's important to note that just because it's a simple answer to a big question that we'll spend the rest of our life wrestling with, we don't have to pretend that it's an unanswerable question. I think that's often the caricature we have with that question. I know many times talking to coworkers or something, it's like, it feels like that's the Trump question. That it'll, it'll stump anyone. What is the meaning of life? There's no answer. Well, it is answerable. Now, you may reject the answer, but that doesn't mean that it's unanswerable. Psalm 16, where we'll be looking at this morning, and we'll be spending time in, answers that question by using the the phrasing, the path of life. And so a question for us this morning, very closely related to what is the meaning of life, is what is the path of life? That's the question I want each person here to ask themselves. What is the path of life? What would it mean to have true confidence, true contentment, and true delight? I believe Psalm 16 answers that question. It tells us exactly that. And so that will be our big idea this morning, our big idea, the path of life, is marked by confidence, contentment, and delight in God. The path of life is marked by confidence, 
contentment, and delight in God. And those will also be our points that we work through this morning, these three marks of the path of life. And so would you stand with me as I read Psalm 16? And as I read it, we uh, consider the answer to that question. What is the path of life? Uh, This is God's word for us today. And so I will remind you of that when I finish reading by saying, literally, this is God's word. And if you agree with that statement, I would encourage you to, uh, with me, say thanks be to God. Look at Psalm 16. We see uh, in the title... Uh, You may have a title that's been added. Mine here says, You Will Not Abandon My Soul. There's a little title underneath. It says, A Miktam of David. Now, this word, Miktam, we don't know what it means. Scholars don't know what it means. Lots have wrestled with, you know, what the meaning could be. I read a lot about it this week, and it doesn't seem to change the way we would interpret. So if you feel like some extra reading this week, do some research on that word. But it doesn't seem to change the interpretation of this psalm for us. So, let's hear God's word. Preserve me, O God, for in you... I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen Portion and my cup, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. The reason why I think we have so much trouble answering the question about what the meaning of life is or what the path to life is is because we want answers. We are devoting our lives to the desperate search for security, for contentment, and for joy. That's exactly what the hope of Psalm 16 is. It's a psalm of confident resting in God. So... Let's dig into those three marks of the path of life, confidence, contentment, and delight in God. First, confidence. The path of life is marked by confidence. As I said, this is what Psalm 16 gives us, confidence, security. This is something we want. But the way Psalm 16 delivers it for us is often not in the place that we would most typically look. Look how David starts. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. From the beginning of this psalm, we see that there is some kind of a need. We don't know what that need is, but David needs preservation. And he finds it by taking refuge in God. The profession of faith in the next verse affirms this kind of security. It shows where his confidence is placed. Look with me at verse 2. 
I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. What's he saying here? He's saying my confidence is not in me. My confidence is in God alone. David goes on here to contrast those who follow God and those who don't. In verses 3 and 4, look at verse 3. It says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David is delighting in those who are living lives devoted to God. Lives that are characterized by personal holiness. This is what the word saints here means. It could literally be translated as holy ones. And then in verse 4, it says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David here highlights the futility of following false gods. He's done this a few times already throughout the book of Psalms or the Psalter. But he uses strong language here to say that their sorrows will multiply. It's a cyclical, spinning nature, the futility of of false and misguided worship. And he says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Again, kind of interesting language, something we might not talk about all the time. But what David is saying here, he's saying he won't allow himself to worship false gods as they do. He won't bring offerings of blood like they would. And he won't even say the names of these false gods. And so we see already four verses into this Psalm, there is a lot going on here. There's a lot going on. There's a proclamation of dependence. There's a profession of faith. And then we get two pictures. A picture of holy lives devoted to God and a picture of the futility and path to destruction of a life spent following false gods. These four verses start to give a portrait with a contrast of the path of life. And that's where we see our first mark, that that it is a path marked by confidence. And so this kind of, as we think through these things, should lead us to ask a certain type of question. Where are you putting your confidence? Don't let that roll over because we talk about, use that language all the time. Where are you putting your confidence? Where is your security? Are you praying that God would preserve you? Are you taking refuge in him? Are you saying that he is your Lord? Or does your life demonstrate that you are making someone, something, or even yourself Lord of your life? Are you able to say with humble confidence that God is the God of all good and that you have no good apart from him? And are you living a life that is characterized by personal holiness? Or is your life better described as running after other false gods? And maybe you're here this morning and you do worship another god of another religion. But maybe you're here and you don't. But either way, if you take an honest look at your life, who or what do you worship? Who or what do you put your confidence in? I've shared these diagnostic questions before as well, but it is a helpful tool, I think, at exposing where we find confidence, where we find security, and diagnosing where the idols are in our lives. What, if you lost it, would absolutely crush you? What, if you lost it, would absolutely crush you? 
What makes you most happy? What makes you most anxious, most nervous, most angry? All of this gets us to a place where we can answer the question, what is your chief end? And our answers to that question show us where we are placing our confidence, shows us where we're placing our security. And we love to think that we're secure, right? And we might be, you know, blissfully ignorant about the places where we are putting our security because we just love to feel safe. We place our lives behind lock and key. Now, lock manufacturers work really hard to make their locks secure. I mean, it makes sense. That's their entire business, right? If they had insecure locks, they wouldn't be a great lock maker. But companies will do different things. They'll use super hardened steel. You'll see that etched into the, uh, you know, the latching part of a padlock. It makes bolt cutters shudder. Lock designers will devise new ways for their keys to function. So instead of using one set of tumblers, like inside of a, a lock, there's tumblers, and you've got to lift them each at different heights, and then that's how the, the lock will turn. And so instead of going in with a key and having one set of tumblers, they'll use two or three or four, and they'll make it really hard for you to be able to, to pick the lock. Others use really intricate mechanisms. They'll use magnets and microchips and electronic fobs that allow only the key that was designed to open that lock to be used. So that gets rid of the option of using things like skeleton keys or, again, even the most advanced lock-picking techniques. And this is good. A lock should be secure. But maybe you've heard the modern proverb, locks are only for honest thieves. You heard that one before. Why is this a saying? Why is this a proverb? Because no matter what kind of super hardened steel the latch part of the lock is, the internals aren't, right? For the gears and things to work inside of a lock, uh, they use softer materials. They have to. And so it would only be the most foolish thief to target the strongest part of a lock, right? Why would they go for the super hardened steel? Why not just pry it in such a way that the soft brass internals just shred and you're in? What about those super advanced locks that, that have uh, multiple tumblers and, and things that would keep you from picking it? Well, yes, if you're using a normal little lock picking set, it'd be hard to pick that lock. But if your lock picking set looks like a sledgehammer, right, you can find a way in. And let's remember, most doors, even with the most advanced locks, are surrounded by a giant weakness, glass, right? We could have the most advanced lock, but a... Only the most honest thief would say, I don't want to break the window. You know, smash. Oh, I'm in, right? So it's not that complicated. But all of this highlights, when we think about locks and security, I don't say all this to make you question, oh man, I'm not safe at all at home. But I do say this to make us think that we probably consider ourselves a lot safer than we actually are. We think that we have a lot more security. We're placing a lot more security in something as simple as a lock than it deserves. Right? And security is a good thing, but ultimately we realize that no matter how perfect of a life we orchestrate, how amazing it would look on paper, like the, I'm sure the pamphlets for these super expensive locks look, we aren't near as secure as we think. And this is because the security that we anchor our hope in is too often circumstantial. It's too often situational. And when, not if, but when, 
that security that we are banking on gets compromised, we are absolutely shaken. We realize how little safety, how little security, how little refuge we ever had. And so how does this play out? Have you experienced the feeling of when your safety net, the lock that you were trusting in, disappears? When what you were hoping for maybe doesn't come to fruition? Maybe your job vanished before your eyes. Maybe that sure thing, investment, turned out to be less of a sure thing. Turned out to be a bad investment. Maybe the health that you took so for granted was threatened by cancer that you couldn't see. Or maybe by a worldwide virus that you can't see. Maybe the freedom that you once had, that was your security, but now it feels encroached on. Maybe your spouse left you. Maybe your spouse betrayed you. Maybe your prodigal child has wandered away or is wandering away. Now, these things aren't necessarily idols. Not every rash is poison ivy. But if you have one, it's worth asking if you've been wandering around in the woods. And so it's helpful when we look at these things that would trouble us if we lost them, things like our health, our freedom, our finances, our families, We need to remember that these are good gifts from God. But they can easily become idols. They can easily become our refuge. Right? We might say, to paraphrase verse 1 in a terrible way, we might say, Preserve me, O God, for in my marriage I take refuge. Preserve me, O God, for in my finances I take refuge. That's not a good place to be. Because too often we put our hopes and dreams in things that just simply can't hold that kind of weight. And when they are taken or when they are threatened, we are shaken. And so the message of Psalm 16 is that there is another way. There is a path of life that is marked by confidence, actual confidence. And this isn't a life that is void of trials, even brutal trials, but it is a life that where we can say with humble confidence that God is our refuge. Psalm 16 prepares our hearts and our minds for life storms by rightly directing where we are placing our security. If we pray that God would preserve us, if we take refuge in him, if we say to him and live like he is our Lord, if we live lives that are marked by personal holiness... And delight in the saints that are around us. And if we don't fall into worshiping and trusting in things that will only bring us sorrow and misery, we can have confidence. That's the hope of Psalm 16. That's good news. It's it's security that's actually secure. And that confidence is part of the path of life that God calls us to. And this path and that confidence is the secret to contentment. And that is our second mark of the path of life, contentment. The path of life is marked by contentment. We don't have to sit and wonder what we are chasing for like Tom Brady. We can know true contentment in whatever circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in. Sometimes I think we settle for what you know, we think contentment is, that it's simply settling. Like, oh, if I'm content, I guess I'm, yeah, it's, yeah. Is that how you think of contentment? I'm going to go with the dictionary definition of contentment, which is a state of being that is happy or satisfied. This is what we see in Psalm 16. 
Again, we don't know the circumstances of, of where David was at in his life that got him to the place of writing this. But we see that he is content. He is happily choosing God's way in it. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and cup. You hold my lot. Again, familiar biblical language, portion and cup, food and drink, metaphors and descriptors that say that Yahweh is who God has chosen. And that is therefore his allotment. And what does his confidence affirm that God holds his lot? As we often sing here, he's saying, you will hold me fast. And we see that this verse bridges us from confidence to contentment. David is not only satisfied, fully happy in his portion and lot, but he is actively choosing God, knowing that God holds his lot. Again, this is a contrast again to the verse that is immediately before, that there is futility in chasing other gods. And so a good question for us along the way to be asking at this point is, is is God your portion and cup? Whatever your life lobs at you, are you choosing to continue being Lord of your life, trusting in insecure things, or are you willing to humbly submit to God as all that you need? Again, these aren't words of condemnation. This is good news. And we see that it isn't purely wishful thinking. David goes on to write in verse 6, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is land imagery. Land is so significant in the Bible. It's significant today, too, mostly because of real estate prices. But it's significant in the Bible because it's part of what God has entrusted to his people, part of what God has blessed his people with. And so here David is saying that the boundary lines have fallen, and however they fall, he has a beautiful inheritance. And we know David's life. It had highs and it had lows. It had hills and it had valleys. He's saying, I have a beautiful inheritance. He is content. He is saying that where things have fallen, he is content. God provides all that he needs. He holds my lot. And it's a wrong step here to apply this only to material prosperity. Seeing that as the only metric for contentment. We can look, again, at celebrity test cases. We can see that you can have it all and be completely empty. We don't have to look beyond our own lives to see that the things that we long for, the things that we envy, they never satisfy. You may long to be no longer single, but as lovely as the gift of a relationship or a spouse is, your contentment cannot be you know, wrapped up in rose-colored glasses uh, and this just impossible set of ideals because your relationship will not be perfect. You sin. Your prospective spouse will sin. You may long for that dream job, but you will find out at some point that it is still a job. You may long for that next tech gadget, a bigger home, or that just bursting bank account. But if these things are the metrics of contentment, that's not contentment. That's false satisfaction. Again, think of these things. Relationships, work, hobbies, technology, and a home. These aren't bad things. But they are a trivial happiness. And we need to learn that if our confidence is only found in these things, we will not be content. We will always be chasing. And that chasing will only lead us to the path of death, not the path of life. It will only lead us to sin because 
since we will never find ultimate contentment from our spouse, we may fall for any and all manner of sexual sin. Since we will never find ultimate contentment in our work, we will become lazy, anxious, and depressed because our dream has become a job. And since we will never find ultimate contentment in the next gadget, toy, home, or bank account, we will fall into envy, greed, pride, any manner of thing. Contentment can't be found in situational or circumstantial prosperity. Contentment can be found in God alone. And that is why our chief end is that. To know God, to glorify him, and to enjoy him forever. It's why the Apostle Paul could write about the secret to contentment. I like that language. Oh, it's a, there's a secret here. I, I want to be in on it. There's a secret to contentment. He writes about it in Philippians chapter 4. And that's the context when he talks about the secret to contentment, which sets up probably the most contextually abused verse in the whole Bible. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Look at what Paul writes in Philippians 4, starting in verse 11 to 13. It says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul wrote Philippians from prison. That alone should tell us that Philippians 4.13, that well-known verse, is not a promise that we can just name and claim whatever we want. It's that the secret to contentment is Christ. That whether you're poor or you're rich, whether you're brought high or you are low, whether you face plenty or hunger, the secret to contentment is knowing God and receiving strength from him regardless of the circumstances and situation. David makes this clear by showing that this contentment found in the path of life is not even only the beautiful inheritance that he receives, but also the way that God is with him, the way that God guides him. Look in verses 7 and 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David praises God that he gives him counsel. He he leads him. He gives him wisdom. He gives him the gift of scripture-inspired, a scripture-inspired conscience. That's what he means in the second half of verse 7. He says, in the night also my heart instructs me. The words here for my heart could also be translated as literally guts. My guts. And so it's more than just a gut feeling. But because the Lord has given him counsel, he is able to be instructed by his heart, by his guts. His conscience has been shaped by God's instruction. And this should make us again reflect on what we saw as the gateway to the book of Psalms, Psalm 1, that says God's instruction we are to meditate on day and night so that it will mold us, shape us, guide us, and so that we won't be blown away like chaff in the wind, but instead we will have deep roots planted by streams of water. And we see that this when we think like that and live like that, this contentment works backwards as well. It feeds back into confidence. Look at verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. This is the same refuge, not be shaken, secure, confidence-inspiring imagery we saw in verse 1. Because God is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Whether circumstances or situations change, whether the storm comes, God doesn't change. And so he is my confidence 
And because of that, I am content. I'm not settling. I'm content. I'm seriously happy and satisfied. And we see that that contentment, then, contentment bridges us right into the rest of the psalm, and that contentment becomes something even sweeter, even grander, which is delight. And that's our third mark of the path of life. The path of life is marked by delight in God. Verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. That verse captures all three points, all three marks of our big idea. Safety and security, that's confidence. Therefore, my heart is glad, that is contentment. And my whole being rejoices, that's delight. That verse holds it all together. This is the path of life. Sheer delight. And so again, another question I want you to think about, honestly think about, what would it look like for your whole being to rejoice? What would it look like for your whole being to rejoice? John Piper famously and constantly talks about how the, it is cyclical that our worship of God and his glorification, it's for our good and for his glory, and it's, it just feeds one bucket pouring into another. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we place our confidence in him, we find absolute contentment in him, and we bring him glory. That's why we were created, to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. That is the path of life, marked by confidence, contentment, and delight. Because when we love God and glorify God in that way, we are just loving him for who he is. Not just what he's given to us, not just what he's done for us, but who he actually is. Again, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Now, some people see this as a deal breaker for Christianity. And maybe that's you here this morning. Say that if God is so concerned about his own glory, that's egotistical, that's vain, that's selfish. Well, C.S. Lewis, many of you know who C.S. Lewis is, before he was a Christian, he, he cited this as one of the reasons why he rejected Christianity. He said, for God to, de to desire us to delight in him and to praise him, it was like a vain woman who wanted compliments. But he eventually discovered how God being glorified and how our praise was not vain, but how delighting in God was actually an essential ingredient. It was impossible to not have that. It's a long quote, but it's C.S. Lewis, so you can get away with it. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The word, world rings with praise. Lovers praise their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of the weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised the least. I had not noticed either 
that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. It is what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help but doing about everything that we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not, praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed, end quote. And so look at verse 11 of Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is hope. That is the path of life. That's what Dan reminded us about last week, that living in the presence of God is serious business. You remember that? That is absolutely true. The good news is because what God has done for us in, in Christ, as Dan again reminded us, he has given us the integrity of heart necessary to dwell with the Lord forever. It's how we can have fullness of joy in his presence. It's how uh, at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. It's how verse 11 can even be possibly true. And that's Christian hope. That is the answer to the question. What is the meaning of life? Because our sin and rebellion and false worship, I mean, it's, it's sin. It separates us from God because he is perfect and holy. But the good news is that doesn't need to end in sorrow. It doesn't need to end at verse 4. It is possible for verse uh, 5 and on to be true. And the only way that it's possible is because God has created a way for the impossible gap between us in our sinful state and God in his perfection and holiness. God has made a way for that impossible gap to be bridged. Because our sin demanded punishment, and so God took things into his own hands. He made a way for us to to not be abandoned to Sheol, as David writes, that we wouldn't be abandoned to the realm of the dead but that we could somehow be counted as sinless even though we sin. That's the beautiful paradox of the gospel. And how did God do this? How did God accomplish this for us? We did this through the gift of his son, Jesus, by sending him into the world to live a sinless life. We see the apostle Peter actually quote from Psalm 16 in his first sermon at Pentecost. He quotes from this psalm, and he says that it's about Jesus, that Jesus is the perfect holy one that never saw corruption. And so Jesus was perfectly sinless, yet he died for the sins of the world. The punishment that was deserved, he took. Not deserved by him, deserved by us, but he took on his shoulders. He died so that we might live. He died so that if you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ, what he did for you, You could be counted as righteous. That is how you can find a refuge. And that's how you can have confidence. That is where, whether the circumstances are good or bad, the gospel stays the same. 
That's why whether when circumstances are good or bad, you can be content because your identity isn't tied up in who you married or how many Super Bowl rings you wear. Your contentment comes from having a beautiful inheritance, the promise of eternal life. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose. He defeated death itself. He demonstrated that God's just wrath against sin had been satisfied. And just as Jesus rose from the dead, that gives us hope that we too can have eternal life, eternal hope. Friends, that is the path of life. That in God's presence there is fullness of joy. And that to be with him forever, there are pleasures forevermore. Again, don't let that word skate over your mind. Forevermore. I want to close with an illustration that's inspired by another one that I had heard where the author is trying to comprehend eternity. Have you tried to think about eternity before? Right? Something short circuits when you try, right? Because it's, it's absurd when you really think about it. But when we look at a word like forevermore, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, we should be trying to think about eternity. And so hear this absurd story and try to comprehend eternity with me. Picture a parakeet in your backyard. You picturing it? Picture it. Okay, little parrot-looking bird. Okay, picture a parakeet in your backyard next to a sandbox. Maybe you don't have a sandbox in your backyard. Pick your childhood home. Picture a parakeet next to a sandbox. And let's imagine that you could go out and you could instruct that parakeet to pick up one grain of sand in its beak. Then, let's imagine that you were able to instruct that parakeet to fly nonstop to the moon and drop it off. Okay? I told you, it's absurd. Okay? And let's say that that parakeet could fly at its top speed with no brakes. So that's 40 kilometers an hour, no brakes, traveling 384,000 kilometers. I googled it. Okay. This would take the parakeet 400 days of nonstop flying at full speed, somehow through space, to get to the moon where he then drops off the grain of sand and flies back to Earth. 400 days there, 400 days back. Over a year there, over a year back. He then picks up the next grain of sand and flies back to the moon. He drops off that grain, flies back to Earth. 400 days there, 400 days back. One by one, the parakeet takes each grain of sand from your sandbox to the moon. Now, more numbers for you. And I know you'll Google this when you get home. Okay. Keep in mind that the, uh, an average grain of sand, not the dustiest, tiniest little one, and not the giant kind of gravelly looking ones, the average grain of sand, one square foot of sand is one million grains. Not a cubic foot of sand, a square foot, flat. One layer of grains of sand, 12 inches by 12 inches, is a million grains of sand. I did a lot of Googling to find that one out. And so a cubic foot, you can do the math here, if it's a thousand across a thousand, there's a million, a thousand this way, that's a billion in a cubic foot of sand. That's absurd. Numbers that are beyond our comprehension, right? Billions and billions of grains of sand lay, lay in the average sandbox, even a small sandbox. But we'll say that the parakeet could do it. He did every single one. 400 days there, 400 days back. Picked up another grain. 400 days there, 400 days back. Picked up another one. And he gets them all. When he's finished, you take him down to Key West, Florida, you show him the Atlantic Ocean and the beach which runs along the entire East Coast. You tell him, I want you to start clearing off the sand of the beach one grain at a time. And so he starts there, 
works his way up to Miami, then to Jacksonville, then to Hilton Head, then to Charleston, then to New York City, then to Boston, then up towards Maine. He takes each grain of sand to the moon and then comes back one grain at a time, 400 days there, 400 days back. When he's done with all of that, you take him to the West Coast, from Mexico all the way up to California and Oregon. You tell him to take one grain of sand at a time, fly it to the moon. When the parakeet finishes with all of that, then you take him to this little place. You say, oh, I heard there's a little more sand. It's called the Sahara Desert. We're going to go there. So then you go to the Sahara Desert. I want you to clear all the sand off the Sahara Desert, one grain of sand at a time. Fly to the moon 400 days. Fly back 400 days. Okay, have you lost count yet? Okay, so then he finishes the Sahara Desert. And you say, now listen, Mr. Parakeet. Three quarters of the earth is covered by water. Let's drain the oceans dry at the bottom of the oceans. Lots of sand. So take all the sand of the moon, one grain at a time, 400 days there, 400 days back. And when he finishes, if you could add up the unfathomable number of years, remember a year there, year back, every grain of sand. If you could add up the number of years it has taken to remove all the sand from all those places, that wouldn't even put a dent into eternity. That wouldn't move the needle this much. Eternity would be just beginning. This is the scope of the word forevermore in verse 11. Eternity, it's incalculable. And so when you think of that word forevermore, when you think of the concept of eternity, pleasures forevermore, being in the presence of God, having fullness of joy, don't waste your life following temporary comforts, securities, pleasures, or thrills. When you think about the scope of eternity, does that make that sin that you know you're hanging on to sound a little bit foolish? Don't waste your life bitter about the hand that you've been dealt, the lot in life that you've got. Don't waste your life worshiping gods that are not gods at all. Don't waste your life settling for simply settling. Beloved, the meaning of life and therefore the path of life is being confident in Christ, content in Christ, and delighting in Christ. Let me close with another well-known psalm that again mirrors this language and eternal hope that we can have. Psalm 73, let's read verses 23 to 26. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's our call, Christians, to delight in God for the glory of God. So Alex is going to lead us in a prayer of praise and adoration, and then we'll share in the Lord's Supper together.